Welcome to Trek Companion. I'm your host, Brian Williams. I'm Adam Caesar. I'm Stephen Embry. This is episode 83, and today we're discussing Next Gen's fourth season episodes, Nth Degree Cupid and Drumhead. Here we go. The Nth Degree, Season 4, Episode 19, Production Number 193, Original Air Date April 1st, 1991, Directed by Robert Legato, Written by Joe Minoski, Music Composed by Ron Jones, Guest Cast Include Dwight Schultz as Reginald Barkley, Saxon Trainer as Linda Larson, Paige Long as April Anaya, Jim Norton as Albert Einstein, David Coburn as Brower, and K.E. Cooter as Cytherian. <laughs> When the Enterprise sets out to repair the Argus Array, a telescope that has stopped relaying data for two months, the crew discovers an alien probe near the telescope. Geordi takes Barkley, a notoriously shy crew member, to investigate. As they near the probe, it emits an energy surge that knocks Barkley unconscious but unharmed. Later, the probe begins to follow the starship, emitting a dangerously high level of energy, and the crew is unable to evade it when Barkley amazes everyone by taking charge of the situation and eliminating the probe. Report, Mr. LaForge. It is now almost impossible to tell where Barkley ends and the computer begins. He's actually rewriting the isolinear chips each time he extends himself a little further. How do we get him out of there? We don't. Not without killing him. Nth degree. Caesar, why don't you kick us off on this one? Um, I remember this episode. I liked it a lot when I was... um when it first came on when I was growing up. Because, I mean, I think we can all agree that we all enjoy the character Barkley, and I thought this was still a fun episode for him. And it's kind of just cool to think about, you know, becoming um, exponentially smart. You know, it's almost like having superhero powers. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I I really enjoyed this episode. Um, Thought it moved well, was paced well, and it it holds up for me. I, I like it just as much as I did when I was younger. I, I believe it's... Oh gosh, I should have looked this up. Uh, what's it called? Flowers for Algernon? Algernon? Oh, gosh, dang it. Uh, an old sci fi st- short that I think got, it was turned into a novel at some point. Um, where it's kind of the same story they used in um, Lawnmower Man, you know, where, where you operate on somebody in some way and they become super intelligent briefly, you know, it's not permanent. Um, the kind of the effects that would have. It's a, it's a cool, uh, like a really sci-fi kind of story. It's really kind of out there at times. Um, Steve, yeah, I I too enjoyed this episode a lot. Um, I like I like the Barkley character. I like the uh, the the concept, and uh, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of one of those episodes that's got a little bit of everything, you know. There's there's some action, there's humor, there's uh, um, like you said, this kind of superhero idea. I mean, this idea of going, uh, you know, achieving things you've never been able to do before, and there's a little bit of a mystery involved too. What's what's causing this effect in him, and so on. So it's there's a lot to like. Do you guys think this story would have worked? as well or not worked um, had it been like one of our show regulars instead of uh, Barkley? I would probably say not as well. I think Barkley was probably the perfect character for it. You know, you got a guy here who's very self-conscious and, you know, has trouble 
communicating with people and then you know all of a sudden he's you know basically injected with a thousand times of intelligence and you know confidence and you get to kind of see that transformation and you get to see um Schultz who's actually a pretty good actor I mean you know mm-hmm. usually we see him kind of playing more fumbly characters but I mean you know he he can act and you know I like the the transition and he's able to pull it off um pretty well yeah like just the comp the Scytherians uh, didn't <laughs> inject him with confidence from their probe you know i was thinking about that like his confidence that just comes from he has the line about i'm the person i always, or i'm the man i always wanted to be or something like that i'm the person i always wanted to be so is it more like the confidence is a result of the intelligence or do you think it was more are they part and parcel well that's one of the earliest notes i made in this i think it's one of the more interesting concepts because um so so what is the case does it just feed on itself you know the the idea of um, does confidence come from uh, heightened ability, or does confidence lead to heightened ability, or is it a little bit of both? I mean, obviously, in this case, there is something in effect that's giving him a super high IQ and all these abilities and all this kind of situation. But in real life, what are we faced with? You know, I mean, when we have a really good day and we uh, we achieve something, does it boost our confidence? Obviously, but um, that in turn does that feed on us being able more focused and able to do uh, bigger and better things? You know, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you could find some seriously intelligent people that don't that lack confidence. Um, I kind of, yeah, I didn't really think about it the way you did, Brian. I mean, he probably had, you know, it's this, this personality or this person that he wanted to be was probably inside of him. Um, I mean, we can debate whether that's really Barkley or it's just kind of like what he wants to be. And then, you know, these abilities just gave him gave him that ability to become that. Um, um, it's debatable. So if it had been someone else getting this gift, uh, the confidence wouldn't necessarily have been in a byproduct. I guess it depends on the personality. But at any rate, um, that's of course what makes it, you know, a lot of those, you talk about the humor or the fun, some of that, that's where that seems to come from. That scene, of course, the scene when he, when he hits on Troy, um, he is a pretty smooth operator. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's smooth in that it's completely, he's hitting on her 100%. There's no doubt about it. There's no beating around the bush. It's just, it's very, 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 and um, she knows that's what it is, and he knows that's what it is, and he's very confident. And when she turns him down, he he's doesn't fine. bat an eye. He's fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> you know, if you're I'm a go- young man listening to this podcast, just making your way in the world, take notes. <laughs> I, I do like uh, that they went back to that in the later scene when they're all in the Picard's ready room, and she's like, "Oh, it was a good, it was a good path." <laughs> yeah, it was good, yeah. a good one. No, even better because Picard's line is, "Has Barkley done anything threatening?" He uses the word threatening. You know? <laughs> and then Troy says, he made a pass at me last night. It was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, but, um, yeah, it's interesting that that's, you know, if this is making him the person he wants to be or the person he always wanted to be, you know, we're kind of seeing that. We're, we're seeing, in a way, we're seeing the person that he was on the holodeck in, the previous, in his previous appearance, you know, just out yeah, and about. Yeah, makes sense. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but like I said, so, my, my, so Brian, ahead. you would say this person probably was always in him. This was, it was so it wasn't um, because of the um, the super intelligence. This just kind of gave him, gave him that ability to let it shine, basically. 
I think it's just it's the person that he wanted to be, just like he said, you know. It's a person that we we all have those we all have, you know, who we are, who we think we are and and you know, who we wish we were, you know, who we, who we want to be, kind of our our ideal self. Um and 99% of the time all drama and within oneself in life comes from the discrepancy between those three figures. The closer those three figures are to one, uh, probably the happier you are, the less drama you have. Um, and I think that that's kind of what's happening here, but it's, but it's obviously massively skewed because of this, um, synthetic almost intelligence that he has. But, uh, but I think the reason that works is that, I mean, they explain it. It's, it's not like he literally just got injected necessarily with intelligence. There's, there are physical things going on in his brain that are just opening up his, some kind of ability that apparently maybe all humans could have if they could undergo this same process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, how did he describe yeah. it? He basically said he was reprogrammed. Is that what he said towards the end of the episode? Well, no, but but Crusher examined him and like yeah. his brain halves were fused, fusing or something. I don't remember what it was. Um, but anyway, my I also I love Barkley. I really do. Um, we talked about that last time. I think that maybe the his first appearance, the the holodeck appearance, the holodeck episode. Um, I think overall, probably I like that episode a little bit better because it's just even more Barkley. Because mm-hmm. um, here, once he's on the on his control chair, um, it's a little less Barkley Barkley. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, this is a, this is a good episode. It's a fun episode, and my my favorite thing about it isn't even Barkley so much as it is just the total sci-fi trippy story of it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you've got him sitting there um, talking through the computer with lasers bouncing off his head. <laughs> you know, it looks like a like a I don't know, 80s dance club or something. Uh, but it's cool, you know, it's really, it's just, it's trippy. And then he takes him, th- what is it, 30,000 light years? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's those kind of stories that I, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but when they, they, and they rarely do it, but when they do these stories, they're like, man, that seems like it was a a novel, like a sci-fi, like one of those billions of, of, of that's an exaggeration, but I'm sure hundreds of thousands of obscure sci-fi novels from the 50s or something that ever, people have forgotten more of them than, than mm-hmm. were remembered. You know, I like those, the, the, that crazy imagination level of just way, way, way out there. And I think this episode uh, goes in that direction, and that's what makes it fun. Um, it did remind me a little bit in of... Uh, crap. Um... First episode, uh, not to be air, but but the first episode produced of the original series. Mm, yeah, uh, once Where Kirk No Man Has there. Gone Before. Right, Where No Man Has Gone Before. You know, it reminds you a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Without you know, the I, malice I, or evil. Yeah. Did you ever? Yeah. Did, I never really felt. I never got that impression from Barkley that you know, because usually when you know when you have stories like this, um, you know, it can go, it can go south pretty quickly. Well, but I think that. They 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 walked the line, but they never crossed it. I think with Barkley. Yeah, not just with Barkley, but even the Cytherian. It's immediately clear that he's not malevolent or something. Um, but even Barkley, there's still some. There's still drama there. There's still fear. You know, people are frightened. Um, I didn't. Fe- I mean, he has that scene where he says something about, "You're like little children," mm-hmm. uh, but he does say children and not ants. <laughs> yeah. You know, like so you said, you're they, right. there they was walked a, there the line. Was some, 
there was an evil thing, more more evil going on in Where No Man Has Gone Before. Like I remember that's the scene early on, very early in the episode, when Spock tells Kirk, "Kill him, kill him, kill him now while you can," and because it, it's not that doesn't happen forty minutes into the episode. That's like really early. You know, he's very quick to see where this is going, and that there's no hope for someone that's going to be that smart. Um, so here. Picard is obviously very reticent to kill him, although he does give the order, and I thought that was a cool moment. It's very brief, and there's so much going on, you can miss it. But when he tells Worf, you know, once it gets to the point where Barclay's trying to take him through that graviton wormhole thing, whatever it is, you know, once it gets that far, and Picard is is seriously concerned for the safety of his entire ship, because obviously he doesn't know about the Scytherian thing, uh, he does tell Worf, you know, disconnect him, knowing full well that that means kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, he does get to that point. Obviously, it's unsuccessful. Barkley has his little shield up, um, but that's 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 something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not surprising because you know it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, wouldn't be much of an episode if that happened. <laughs> hmm. But uh, I was I I you know I remember this one fondly. I still I still enjoy it. Caesar, you said you you've remembered it that you that you liked it a lot. You felt the same way, Steve, as far as the episode now versus your memory of it. Yeah, yeah, I think I I always enjoyed it. Um, like when I first saw it, and all the way up until now, it's definitely memorable. It, I think it has something to say and uh, has a lot of humor, mystery, and action in it too. Well, so what does it have to say? What's this episode about? Uh, you know, for me, it's 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 kind of a little bit relating to what Troy said late in the episode about having a time in your life where you exceed your limits and how do you carry that through, you know, I mean, I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's fine. It's, it, you know, we've touched on this notion of how much of Barkley it was all of that the whole time, how much of it did they unleash? They didn't change his personality. They just did something to uh, facilitate his brain activity in some fashion. So it's, it's it's kind of a little bit about to me. It's about uh, how you know one's potential, achieving one's potential, and and having those moments that you perhaps can carry on. Hopefully, can carry on through the rest of your life. Those moments where you achieve something big. Well, it's telling that they let you know that he he remembers it, and the Scytherian plan mm-hmm. had nothing in there for like wiping his memory or something. He doesn't understand, but he remembers. Mm-hmm. You know. Adam, what's it about for you? Yeah, I agree. I agree with um, what Steve said. Um, you know, and I think we touched on it a little bit earlier about um, you know wanting to be the person who you want to be. And you know, I think you can go into what Troy said. I think I think we all have those um, moments where we reach our full potential of of who we are and what what we're supposed to be. But um, I don't I, like um, you know like. Troy said it's kind of fleeting and you have to take um you have to take pieces of those moments so I think that's what's trying to say you know is like you know remember those things to use them to your benefit um later on in life you know hmm. well, cool good episode I like it holds up I think looked good in uh high def except for that that effect like the going through the the graviton wormholey thing <laughs> effect. That's just that just seems dated and cheesy. I don't know. There was something about it. I was like, ugh. Anybody else think that? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. 
the stretched Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, the contortion, and especially the shots on the bridge. You know, it was a little bit. Eh. But I don't even know how they did that at the time, doing it all analog. Um, so yeah, I could live without that, but that's, that's a very minor thing, no big deal. Anyway, good episode, holds up, enjoy it. Let's move on to Six Degrees for the Nth Degree. Hmm. Steve. Yes. Jim Norton plays the holographic Albert Einstein. He will again play Einstein over a poker game in this Season 6 finale. Name the episode. Season 6 finale. Is it, uh... Descent Part 1? You are correct. Adam, uh, K. Cutter, is that how you pronounced it, Steve? Cutter? Cuter? I'm not sure. Yeah, something like that. K. Cooter plays the disembodied head. uh, This is Adam. (laughs) Uh, Question, Adam. Uh, K. Cooter plays the disembodied head of the Cytherian that appears on the bridge. In DS9's first season, he plays the Syrah in the episode The Storyteller. What DS9 crew member takes over as Syrah when Cooter's Syrah dies? Um, is that O'Brien? You are correct. It was O'Brien. One to one. Moving on. Cupid, season four, episode twenty, production number one ninety four. Original air date April twenty second, nineteen ninety one. Directed by Cliff Bowl. Story by Randy Russell and Iris Stephen Bear. Teleplay by Iris Stephen Bear. Music composed by Dennis McCarthy. Guest cast include Jennifer Hetrick as Vosh, Clive Revel as Sir Guy of Gisborne, John Delancey as Q, and Joy Staten as Servant. <laughs> When the Enterprise hosts an archaeology symposium, Picard gets an unexpected visit from Vosh, an archaeologist he met while on Ryza. The obvious passion between the two is strained, however, when Vosh learns that Picard has never mentioned her to his crew, and he discovers that she plans a secret excursion to the planet. Unknown to either, Q secretly witnessed the heated argument between the two, and later that night, Q appears to Picard and tries to elicit a confession of love from the stoic captain. Picard refuses, and Q responds by telling him he will stand by and watch as she leads him to his destruction. And the lesson begins. And this is England, or to be more precise, Sherwood Forest, at least Q's recreation of it. That would explain these costumes. Quite right, number one. Or should I say, John Little. Well, if he's Little John, that makes you... I know. Robin Hood. Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. Cupid. This is an odd one. Everybody remembers the Robin Hood episode. <laughs> but every every time I watch it, I'm surprised by how little of the episode is the Robin Hood stuff. Right. right. Time, I'm, like, I'm waiting the whole time for it to happen. And they're like, oh, right. It's only like a third of the episode or something. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, to me, if you heard a synopsis of this episode, you'd be like, what? But for some <laughs> reason, it, um, it works um, somehow. Yeah, it does. Um, I think it's because... I think it's because it's so much fun seeing seeing them in all these different roles, and I think this was an Ira Bear script, right? I mean, and, you know, an Ira yeah. Bear, the guy can write, so it's got a, he's got a lot of great lines, and it's kind of perfectly perfectly places each one of the characters we know inside of this Robin Hood universe. Um, but even that, even the the, the pre Robin Hood stuff is still is still fun. Obviously, all that stuff uh, with Vash and you know being surprised that Picard never mentioned her, or or when um, is it in the morning, <laughs> the morning after, and mm-hmm. Vash is there and uh, 
Crusher comes in and sees him, you know, and he's like, uh, this, this is, uh, Crusher, <laughs> Crusher, you know, I mean, that's funny. It's fun. Um, I, I made a quick note, you know, so that, you know, they're having breakfast and then Crusher, you know, she takes some, she takes her on a tour and you see Riker at the bar and I'm like, isn't it kind of early to have a drink? But I guess <laughs> figures, you know, he's <laughs> probably just Riker. having a breakfast, a breakfast drink. <laughs> right. It's Riker. Sure. <laughs> he's got to have a drink to get up in the morning. <laughs> maybe, maybe just in the midnight and he was getting off the midnight. Shift, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. And, he, and apparently he hits on every um, good-looking girl that comes through the door. Oh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Right. <laughs> um, um, and, of course, you end up with some of the the best one-liners ever from uh, Worf. Um, <laughs> I protest, I'm not a merry man. Mm-hmm. That's pretty funny. And then the, even the, the, with the loot that he breaks... The Animal House reference that still makes me that still makes me laugh out loud every time. I don't know. <laughs> it shouldn't be so funny after all these years, but it's, it's <laughs> yeah. no, it's it's oh. the sorry that's funny when he says yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Troy shooting Data with the bow and arrow. Yeah, you know it's funny because that's that's an example. I was like, this is funny because of the edit. This is funny because yeah. <laughs> kind of like I don't know why, but it made me think of the Simpsons. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> be funny but because of the way they cut it it's funny that's that's what that that arrow joke with with um, troy and data was <laughs> I, I like the shot you know the shot where they're setting up the target it's like a low angle of a tree i'm like what are they shooting because I, I wanted to see it a second time i wanted to see data's expression so i noticed i i, I went back and it's like the shot they have heard shoot it's just a uh, like a they had the camera at a low angle pointing up at a tree and it was just kind of like a weird target for her to be aiming at it wasn't like that on anyway Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I wrote down that, that bugged me I don't remember this bothering me before but it, the, the big fight at the end which is fun, it's it's good um, like all the dudes have swords and are having sword fights and then the two women yeah, are smashing pots on heads yeah. it's like, well, what year is this? <laughs> you know? I and I looked it up uh, and so the, the director of this episode commented on that because some people, I guess, said something at the time. I admit I don't remember thinking it at the time, but I certainly did this time. It seems so obviously sticks out. And what he said was bull crap. I, I don't buy it at all. He said, well, we were in the 12th century, so we played it like if we would have to have the 12th century mindset. I'm like, well, that, no, sorry, no. Our brain, The brains of your crewmen did not suddenly revert to 12th century. <laughs> <clears throat> But, you know, it is fun having, like, Vash there. Although, shouldn't she have been, like, way more weirded out? <laughs> like, because she, she didn't know what was happening. She didn't know there was... Yeah, some... she totally played along. I mean, I oh, yeah. guess I'm in some this fantasy world, and I better take advantage. <laughs> you know, I mean... Yeah, like, she should have been, like, catatonic. Right, right. <laughs> like, frightened beyond belief, like, what is going on? Uh, but no. Um, but, okay, so, forget that. So, aside from that weirdness. But, um... It is fun seeing her kind of out of her element, but then she obviously plays into it. So, oh, sure. <laughs> Death? Yeah, of course I'll marry you. Great. Done. Um, so that's all fun, too. Uh, but it's funny because I remembered this episode. I always seem to remember this episode, one, as having way more Robin Hood stuff than it does. It's really just got two scenes almost. Well, okay, three. Um, About a third of the episode, I'd say. Yeah. Um, but that's one. And then the other is... There actually isn't. It's got a lot of great lines, um, and that and the like, and it's, and it's memorable. 
but it oddly doesn't actually have a lot going on in a weird way. I don't know. Um, maybe it's like maybe there's there's so much in it that nothing gets any substantial amount of time. Like we don't get any kind of substantial Picard Vosh relationship stuff. We don't get any substantial Q stuff. We don't get you know we only have a third of the episode in Sherwood Forest, you know. So it, it's it's touching on so many things so lightly. There's so much stuff in it um, that it. Uh, this is not a complaint. I, I enjoyed this episode, but it almost feels a little, I don't know, shallow somehow. Yeah, I see that. Like fabricated, or or like there's like there's a facade, you know. Hmm. This well, I think it's a, well. I think it kind of take. I think it takes us more into what um, Q's role is going to be um, for the rest of the series. He it's he's more you know, it's more going to be more a Q Picard relationship. It's not going to be so much um, him bothering everybody else on the crew. It's 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 going to be more about those two moving forward. I think. Um, well, I think, like, what if what if Q had been Sir Guy, you know? Like you could almost watch, you can almost forget that Q is even in this episode if it weren't for the title, you know. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's the one that puts him in Sherwood Forest, but there are other ways they could have done that if they'd wanted to. I'm just saying, Q doesn't play a terribly. <laughs> well, I mean, I think they don't do it enough. Here. I mean, this uh, is kind of like a small version of what what's the what's the episode Tapestry. I think we'll. I mean, tapestry is—is is that what I'm thinking about? Uh, yeah, where the, it's a wonderful life thing, where Q takes him through. Yeah, I think this is somewhat of a smaller, small, much smaller version of that episode because you see Q come in, and you know he sees Picard has a weakness, and um, you know, and he wants to exploit it. But what we find out about Q is he's—he's he's not exploiting it to to gain anything from him. He's—he's he's exploiting it to teach Picard something. Um, whether that's conscious or not is debatable, but in the end, Picard is a you know he's a more open person. Okay. At the end of this well, I see what you're saying then that that's that's kind of the relationship that Q Q is going to take from now on with Picard. But it's interesting, of course, by the time we get to Voyager, he goes back to being more of the a little bit more of the mischief maker or you know right. reacting. But yeah, no, I think you're right that that's and maybe and this is one of the first of those kinds of of Q things. So. Hmm. Where he's, I mean, yeah, I mean, except for the episode where he comes back for the um, the, the girl who, who's a Q. I don't remember mm-hmm. the name of the episode. I'm sorry. Yeah. Except for that, but I mean, obviously in Tapestry, Q's sole purpose in there is to um, is to teach Picard something, and we get a little bit of that in this episode. And um, we've gotten it on a bigger scale, obviously, when uh, he introduced the Borg. Um, but yeah, that's kind of more the role he takes on. And yeah, you're right. In Voyager, it's he kind of reverts. It's more like on a on a grand scale. It's more, I guess, we, Q. It's more of an exploration of Q and Voyager, and this is more of an exploration of Picard. So, I think that's would be the difference between Q's role and um, Next Gen and Voyager. Well, you know, it's tough because they don't they don't have a lot of time here mm-hmm. to explore these characters, and um, you put a bunch of them in an episode, and you know, it's not a lot of time with each individual. I Steve think. Does, does it hold up for you? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think I think kind of what we may be 
dancing around is that it's it it is written really well and I think if it wasn't for that fact I mean it's on one of those episodes would be just on the verge of being kind of pointless you know like what are, what are they trying to say I mean it's fun no doubt it's fun but we've certainly seen the types of episodes where they kind of like they take a it's like they take some angle at it and it becomes like a like a big joke or something you know let's you know and it, and it and it's fun but there's doesn't seem to be much point and there's no character development i think we it's we don't i don't think i view it this i don't view it that way simply because it's written well and it's so well balanced in terms of what everyone gets to do and there is a there is a kernel of something to it you know substantive and that's what keeps it from getting in that territory i think it's just like it you know it kind of resembles some of those episodes so many of those episodes that are like that that just kind of get shallow and don't seem to have a point. I mean, you know, and I, I would say Ricard does grow in this episode. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that's another different what you were saying. You know, we see it, like you said, you see these funny episodes and you don't really see a difference in the characters at all. But in this one, yeah, there's a there's a change in Ricard. I mean, he, he is starting to ever so slightly soften up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he he almost seems to be enjoying himself by the end of this Robin Hood romp and the the fight he has with Sir Guy and you know running in there and kissing her mm-hmm. uh, you know when he saves the damsel and kisses her and you know there's there's certain there there does seem to be a little bit of him that's allowing himself to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know we we do we all get to see Picard before you know we see him embarrassed whether he admits it or not we see him jealous we see him angry so you get to see a lot of different facets from. The captain in this episode. Um, so what's it about? Well, I think for me, I think you know, there's there's a couple different layers. Like you could you could speak of this notion, like Q, Q's motivation seems to be to to show um, the role of love and and romance and and how it can affect somebody. You know, he's like he's trying to teach Picard a lesson. But for me, because there's this whole thing about um, you know he doesn't he doesn't want to risk the lives of his crew to do something personal yet they all end up everyone pitches in together and takes care of it there to me there's a whole lot of kind of this idea of relying on you know friends and loved ones to get to get things done and to get you through tough times for me there's a little bit of that in there yeah you know you could also say you know it's Picard learning to trust um, the people around him because obviously obviously he trusts them but he doesn't really trust them with his personal life and um you know he uses that facade of you know captain can't captain's got to be above that but um you know as we've all come to know i mean these these characters become family and i think by the middle of the four towards the end of the fourth season that that's pretty much notched up that these they're these are just more than co-workers or you know crewmates they're a family and um you get to see picard open up a little bit more to that idea so that's kind of what's it about for me Well, like I said, I, I I enjoy it. I think it's fun, and it's it's almost like like you can tell the actors are having fun, mm-hmm. you know, and that can't you can't help but feel that and and enjoy it mm-hmm. uh, when you love these characters and and seeing them all together like that, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, this is an episode where you couldn't ask the old trivia question of who's missing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so. Yeah, uh, long-time listeners recall I've, I'm being very selective in which episodes I play for my spouse. Uh, but this was one that I played for, even though 
I wasn't sure it was, um, I don't know, as, as meaningful as, say, Drumhead, which I did also play. But I was like, you know, sometimes, sometimes you can have fun. You can vamp. <laughs> so I'm glad we have this episode. And let's move on to... Six degrees for Cupid. I believe our score is one to one. Adam. Yes. This is the second of Jennifer Hetrick's appearances as Vosh. Her third and final appearance will be in the DS9 episode Q-List in which season of DS9? That's season one. You are correct. Steve, mm-hmm. uh, I was stretching to get another six degrees, so I just <laughs> thought this was a fun fun fact that I did not know until I researched this episode. Um Clive Revel plays Sir Guy of Gisborne, who gets it in the end, thanks to Picard. He originally provided a voice in Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back, in 1980, but his voice was replaced by Ian McDiarmid in the 2004 DVD release and all subsequent releases. For what character had he provided the voice? <laughs> hmm. Okay. Um. Gosh. <laughs> I asked a Star Wars question and asked <laughs> <laughs> It's like, what are you doing, man? Um, I'm just trying to think of some logical reason. I'm sure I'm missing something obvious here. Um, well, if you know who Ian McDiarmid played, then... Uh... Sounds familiar, but I'm just blanking. I don't know. Adam? So he provided a voice... In he was the voice for a character in The Empire Strikes Back in 1980, but in 2004, Ian McDiarmid re-recorded those lines, and in all subsequent Star Wars releases, Ian McDiarmid's voice is this character. Um, trying to think of what characters are in Empire Strikes Back that wouldn't... So if you know talking. who Ian McDiarmid played in all the prequels, that would answer the question. Oh, you're talking about the emperor. There you go. It was the emperor. Yeah. Mm. See, he. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You kind of gave it a, that. That was the hint I needed. <laughs> I knew it was something like that. I just <laughs> didn't know. Yeah. Um, emperor Palpatine. That's right. Uh, so yeah, remember that? That was that one scene in Empire Strikes Back where Vader uh, communicates with him, like his holo- holographic head, and they have a yeah. one yeah. conversation. Yeah. So originally that was uh, Sir Guy of Gisborne doing the voice. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. The Drumhead, Season 4, Episode 21, Production Number 195. Original air date, April 29th, 1991. Directed by Jonathan Frakes. Written by Jerry Taylor. Music composed by Ron Jones. Guest cast include Bruce French as Sabin Genestra. Spencer Garrett as Simon Tarsis. Henry Warrenitz as Jadan. Earl Billings as Thomas Henry, Gene Simmons as Admiral Nora Saty, and Anne Shea as Nellen Tor. When an explosion rips through the Enterprise's warp engine, a visiting Klingon officer is suspected of causing the disaster by providing the Romulans with schematics of the engine. An investigation begins, and Admiral Nora Sati, renowned for exposing an alien conspiracy against Starfleet, comes out of retirement to help. Sati quickly extracts a confession from the Klingon, Jadan, but he denies responsibility for the explosion. Sati's Betazoid aide, Sabin, confirms that Jadan is telling the truth, which implies to Sati there is a co-conspirator aboard the ship. Sir, 
The Federation does have enemies. We must seek them out. Oh, yes. That's how it starts. But the road from legitimate suspicion to rampant paranoia is very much shorter than we think. Steve, why don't you kick us off on Drumhead? Um, I I really like this episode. It's very memorable. Um, this this uh, particular round of episodes overall was very good. I thought, um, but you kind of get a little bit of everything. To me, this is one of these classic ones that there's definitely a, a a big meaning behind it. They don't hide that meaning, but you know, any I think I think these kind of tri- whenever there are trials going on anyway, I think that it really helps. That 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 adds an element to things, makes it suspenseful, action, all this kind of stuff too. Um. Yeah, I just I, I really like this episode. It's funny that that trial episodes can be so enjoyable and dramatic, and they are some of my favorites. Even going back to the original series, like with Court Martial, mm-hmm. um, when it's just a guy sitting on a stand mm-hmm. and a guy in front of him at a table. You know, there's, yeah, yeah. there's nothing inherently visual or exciting about that mm-hmm. in and of itself. Yeah, and I kind of like how this episode just kind of jumps you right into the story. You're kind of almost. Mm-hmm. Right, and you don't really know what's going on. Uh, you, the, the first scenes are um, Riker and Troy interrogating this Klingon Jadan, and um, you're just kind of in the middle of it. You don't really know what's going on right away, so um, you don't often see that in, in Trek episodes. They really it's usually st- start you from start to beginning. Yeah, and if you try and imagine what if they'd opened with like the explosion, um, that would have given too much weight to the explosion, and it wouldn't have been about the mm-hmm. show wouldn't have been about the right stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're right that that was a big, big plus and and, and a departure for for Trek. Um, well, a part of what helps this episode be so good, of course, is um, uh, Crimey. What's her name? Jean Simmons. Simmons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean she's obviously really, really, really good. You know, mm-hmm. Oscar nominee, won Emmys and Globes mm-hmm. or whatever. So I mean, you know, incredible actress. Very, very, very good. Um, Have you guys ever seen her uh, young Gene Simmons in Black Narcissus? I don't believe I have. Fine. Check it out. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, like fine isn't fine? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Mm. This is like the 40s. Yeah. Sure. Um, it, you know, we, we've even seen this theme explored before. In Trek, um, but I like I like it here because it's such a it's such a fine line. You know, it's it's very easy to be heavy-handed with this stuff, and I don't think this episode ever gets there. For example, we have we have Worf essentially essentially not brainwashed. That is far too strong a word, but he's mm-hmm. he's he's co-opted into this this plan in an unwitting way, and he and you know, but. As a, as a main character on this show, as a character that I know and love, I believe this could happen, and I don't hold it against him, mm-hmm. but I believe it, you know, and that's how it's not heavy-handed. If it had been dealt with in a more heavy-handed way or more on, on the nose in that sense, um, I would have expected Worf to see right through it, but because he doesn't, it's the perfect example, and that's why you've got Picard and Worf in that last scene. Mm-hmm. But it's the perfect example of exactly what this episode is talking about, exactly what Picard is talking about when he says, you know, um, villains that twirl their mustaches are easy to spot. Um, but it's the Admiral Satis, and they're going to 
that will always be with us, you know. Um, and, I, and so I like it. I like that it's even though it's it's treading on themes we we've, we've explored before, mm-hmm. uh, that it's still um, a valid exploration. See, um, when I when I started watching this episode, I was like, I mean, are you, you go back and you think at least for me when I when I see when I start watching these episodes, like basically you know in the first minute of the episode, the whole episode that I remember goes through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason, I kind of remember feeling like, you know, the Admiral kind of more went senile than was more like that. And then, you know, watching, then instead of just being like that her whole life, I don't know. Um, mm. But they have, but like you said, they have that end scene where they kind of really kind of make her out to be kind of like the shadowy villain. So I don't know. I didn't well, quite know what to think. So I was going to ask you guys. I mean, did I want to they- comment on that. I want to comment on this now. And this is, this is just as, uh, just as, relevant in our society today. Um, if you create an organization, if you have even just a single individual or a single position whose sole purpose is to seek out these conspiracies, yeah, yeah, there's a fundamental belief in those conspiracies. There's, you're, tipping, you're tipping the weight to the side of I, I, I exist to find experience conspiracies therefore conspiracies must must exist and i must find them you know it's like that early on scene with um oh, sabin right that's that's uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah with sabin and Worf. and sabin says it's a little throwaway line and Worf doesn't think anything of it either but sabin says something like um before i saw you in action i considered you to be a security risk but now <laughs> you know now that i've seen you in action you know i trust you but you know it's a throwaway line but it's it should you should be like what? Right, right. I've, what what uniform do you see me wearing, man? Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I spent all these years training, and, and I've earned that. I'm a Starfleet officer, and you should default to trusting me. That should be the default, you know? <laughs> but it well, isn't. And clearly yeah. they don't because they, they use that against Picard in the end of the episode. Yeah. You know, so there's – once you abandon innocent until proven guilty, where do you go? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, so do, I don't. Do you think there's a fundamental flaw in even having some someone like Admiral Sati in her position exist? Or is that because if you can imagine, if she's been doing this her whole life and she's been very successful, you know, there is this internal pressure and external pressure to find this stuff. And when when you can you can you can imagine this episode happening, not out of nowhere, but if you imagine. Maybe her last five cases, each one was a little bit, a little bit less and a little bit less, and and you know we're coming into it now, and we can see it as for as extreme as it is, mm-hmm. but there's a reason work doesn't see it. Well, see, that's the reason I kind of brought this up because, because um, like I said, when I remember watching it years ago, I was like just thinking, well, maybe she, you know, because they said she was retired or something, so I just kind of like, well, maybe she just kind of lost it. That's kind of what I because they kind of set her up as this grandiose admiral who's accomplished. Many great things, you know, and there's a whole scene where Ricard is basically gawking over her and her family and all that kind of thing. So uh, that would be my only kind of complaint about this episode is like they don't, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like she's bad. It feels like more like she just became bad. And then you have that whole end scene where Ricard basically, I don't know, it's just kind of a a weird contrast. Well, maybe this okay. is just a variation on what you're saying, but it, to me, it feels like, um, 
like that she, she's she's just making the assumption that there is a conspiracy and that she is now there to find it you know mm-hmm. she's not open to the possibility that there isn't one mm-hmm. and that's what she does right. she doesn't she doesn't not find a conspiracy. <laughs> well, like I said, it, it does. It's it's a little thing, and, and I'm not saying like, oh, it makes it ruins the episode. It's just like oh, a little. What thing. I'm saying is that is that is there a fundamental problem with that existing? You know, and we see similar types of things today. Not necessarily talking about finding conspiracies, um, you know, but we have groups that are, I don't know, looking for terrorists, for example, mm-hmm. and right. we we make assumptions. Well, they do things in the name of patriotism and that kind of stuff. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Like, you know, she feels justified in her, in her method. No, no, that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is by creating an organization whose purpose is to find these people, are we not encouraging them to find them even in places where they don't exist Oh, I think it's, without them realizing it. I think it's a result of the of the ebb and flow of this kind of thing. I mean, you know, what's not necessarily drawn out is what probably happened at some point in, in historically in the last several years prior to this episode and what this uh, admiral got involved with. There must have been a number of things that went down, and she was particularly successful in them. And obviously, when those things, these conspiracies happen, it makes everyone paranoid. So we got to expand the department, and and you know, it's like an ebb and flow. These kinds of things, you know, like sooner or later, what happens happens to this woman happened and that is she crossed the line and it became apparent to the right people and so it gets pushed back the other way and uh you know the notion of individual rights became more forefront than the notion of cracking down and finding conspiracies like the whole uh privacy versus uh um one's right to safety thing that just ebbs and flows constantly you know what i'm saying it might there might be a long term trend to these things but i don't know if it's i don't know if I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that having a position of any nature like that is pr- a problem in itself i think that it's a fault of the uh, process that you you need to have a, if you're going to set up a system like that you need to have a very specific checks and you know, very specific checks and balances in place so it doesn't get as far as like she got in this episode mm-hmm. Well, Picard is obviously above this the whole, pretty much the whole time. Yeah. I don't think he ever uh, wavers, and that's a testament of his of his intelligence, you know, and his his ability his to his character and his ability to to step outside of these situations. And that's the those are the kind of reasons um, that he's captain. But yeah, another variation on this concept is um, is the idea that like something. Or if there's something in effect of, you know, if he has nothing to hide, he would answer. You know, we've again we've seen this sort of thing explored, but I think that it's that it's explored subtly enough here and and extremely relevant even to modern society. Mm-hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> and we've seen that. the The problem with this stuff is when there's an ounce of truth. Mm-hmm. That's all it needs is just one little bit. One little tiny seed, you know, and you can get an entire population to buy into it. Um, and th- th- this entire episode starts from from a legitimate crime: uh, this Klingon stealing and, and secrets and giving them to the Romulans. Um, oh, bad that's all it needs. Yeah, truth and bad coincidence. You know, mm-hmm. the accident with the warp core. Um. Uh, Adam, do you have a favorite scene in this episode? The last scene? Um, 
I like the scenes with War from Card, um, just because you know I think that's I, I like the relation. You know, even you know, there's a lot of great scenes in, in this episode, but I like the scenes with War from Card because you know you can always when they have those two when they both have serious talks, you can always you can always see a little bit of growth from each of them, especially, I think, Worf. I don't think it quite set in, it soaked into him, but, you know, when Picard left left the room and, you know, they kind of pushed in on a, a shot of Worf, you can just tell, like, the discussion that they had was starting to sink in, and I, I always kind of enjoy those scenes with Picard and Worf, so I would say that, that was it. Steve? Um, well, of course, I like the, um, the last scene in the courtroom, as it were, you know, where he, you know, <laughs> gives her, her, you know, I don't know the where she, where he, he baits makes, her. Yeah, he baits her, and she goes off and all that stuff too. Because the the points are so good, and and he's so eloquent. The acting is so good too. Of course, mm-hmm. he and she playing off one another. So, yeah, I enjoy that. Of course, I love that the um the her- warp core accident turns out to be just that, you know, and it, it, and it, the structure is really sound. Because if that had happened, say, prior to Tarsus or something, but we had just the, the first meeting of Tarsus, you know, uh, where the Betazoid could tell, oh, he's howling something back, and that just that tiny little bit, oh, it was an accident, turns out, we've got the evidence, it was an accident. Well, obviously, we still have to go with You know, it's it's well-structured, this episode. Um yeah, that scene with that for that scene right after that, where um, you know, um, Satie and Picard are in, are in his ready room, and they're talking about you know the Betasoids, and she yeah. keeps hitting him with logic over and over again, and you know they kind of set that up earlier that she always that's how she argues, so that was a good scene too. And yeah, well, but, I like when Picard's in that scene. He's talking about you know she's like, well, wouldn't wouldn't you start an investigation based entirely on your Betasoid? And he's like, well, not really, no. And even if I if I would, then maybe I should reevaluate that. You know, I mean, that's a smart person who would say that and be mm-hmm. and be open to that as a concept, yeah. uh, reevaluating those situations. But I I like that that kind of analysis of of how to use Troy and and how to use these empathic abilities without relying on them. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. Um, I also know. I also noticed from this episode that you should never have Riker as your lawyer. He never. He never fares fares well. (laughs) Uh, So I guess we've been talking about what it's about. You want to kind of sum up or wrap up what you guys think it's about then? Uh, Yeah, I think we're. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the themes in this episode are 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 just as relevant today as they were then, a hundred years ago, and a hundred years from now that they'll be relevant. It's um, you know, this whole notion of um, innocent until proven guilty. Those themes are talked about. Um, paranoia being used to um, fuel um, power grabs and those sort of things. So I mean, yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of scary themes that need to be, you know, kept in the conscious um, mm-hmm. in this episode. And, one, and once you, you know, you, once you stomp on someone's rights or you don't give someone fair treatment in any respect for any excuse that idea that anyone is vulnerable to being treated in that way too. That yeah. That's a big one. Yeah. And of course it represents, that's represented here by Picard literally be putting on being, being put on the stand at the tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. This episode was, um, this was a money saver. The studio wanted, Paramount wanted a, um, a clip show and thank God, 
Miller <laughs> and Berman said, look what we got in the second season when we did a clip show. No. But we will make a bottle show super, super, super cheap. And they did it. <laughs> and it came in like two or $300 under budget. I mean, two or three hundred dollars, two or three hundred thousand dollars uh, <laughs> under budget. Um, so it just shows you uh, uh, this is a Jerry Taylor script, and we know she's a good writer. Uh, we, she, she, yeah, she wrote, wrote some bad ones, but she certainly wrote some of our favorites. Um, and well, so de- you, you definitely have a good a de- script, and it's all call characters stuff. Yeah, it's definitely dialogue driven. You know, you, you got great actors. Need, who cares? You don't need it. If we like the uh, the sci-fi episodes, like. Like um, uh, the first one we talked about today, nth degree, you know. But I think we'd all agree Drumhead is the best episode of the three we discussed today. All right, uh, let's move on to six degrees for the Drumhead. Adam has three, and Steve has one. So, Steve, are you going first or second? I'll go first. Bruce French plays Sabin, Admiral Satie's Betazoid aide that can tell Tarsis is holding something back. In Star Trek Insurrection, French played an officer working for Rafo. Ruafo. Uh, what race were these villains? What was the name of that race? The villainous race in Star Trek Insurrection, the feature uh, film? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, is it the, um, the Sona? You are correct. It was the Sona. Uh, Adam? Yes. Spencer Garrett plays Creeman. Crewman Tarsis, the medical tech that has pointy ears in his family tree. In Voyager's seventh season, he played Weiss, the holographic Starfleet officer created and used by what hunter species in the episode Flesh and Blood? What was that hunter species in uh, Voyager? Oh, what was their name? <clears throat> oh, damn. I can't remember what the name of the species was. Steve, you can tie it up for the day. Mm, was it Herogen? You are correct. A tie for the day, yeah. a rare tie for the day. Yeah. All right. Man, can you believe, I think we only have two podcast episodes left before we finish out season four. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Um, so we'll be back in two weeks to discuss that. We're going to do the three episodes and then two, if I'm remembering this stuff correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll be back in two weeks with the next three episodes of Next Chance Fourth Season. Um, till then, you can leave a review for us on iTunes. That's how other people find us. That's very helpful. You can email us. That's trekcompanion at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash trekcompanion. And you can follow us on Twitter. That's at trekcompanion. So thanks for uh, spending an hour with us, folks. And uh, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Take it easy. Bye. See ya. I passed it.